Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. In the last seven days, more than a million people have watched this show, the Mother of All Talk Shows. 512,000 watched last Sunday's show and 502,000 have watched Wednesday's show, which has only been out for four days. So that number is going to rise. The interview with the peerless Scott Ritter on the Ukrainian war has achieved 165,000 views and uh, 66,000 of those were on Facebook, 96,000 were on YouTube, the rest on Twitter and Rumble and so on. That number may rise exponentially because everything that Scott Ritter and I discussed is still an issue this week and will be for many months to come. But the direction of travel in the Ukraine war is perhaps measured by the fact that every single friend of Russia, and I could start at China and end, I don't know where you'd like me to, because as you saw in Astana in the last few days, Russia has friends all over the world, Every single one of their embassies in Kiev have ordered their nationals to leave. So something big is about to happen in the Ukraine war. Something that the friends of Russia know about, but the rest of us do not. Now, we'll be talking about the Ukraine, about sanctions and the absolute zero presence of diplomacy with a very considerable United Nations international expert in the course of the two hours of the show this evening. But we'll be talking about the implosion of the British government with the one and only James Melville, a growing force on social media, an independent analyst and freelance writer of the highest rank. He's come from nowhere. Well, the East Nuke of Fife, which is almost nowhere for most of you. Not for me. I used to spend lovely times in a caravan there. But uh, James has become an international figure, not least because of his sage-like appearances here on the mother of all talk shows. And there's nothing he doesn't know about what's happening in the Conservative Party. And if there is, I'll fill you in on the details. Here they are. The Conservatives are going to dump Liz Truss next week. That is to say, before Halloween. Actually, long before Halloween. But I thought I'd play safe and give you that choice on the poll. uh, And uh, you should vote on it now. Will Liz Truss be removed? before Halloween or before Guy Fawkes night. A note to international viewers, Guy Fawkes was an Englishman who in the teeth of wide-scale repression of Roman Catholics in England, 
where nuns and priests were being hanged at Tyburn, now Marble Arch in the centre of London, entered Parliament with the intention, some say good intention, of blowing it up from underneath the House of Lords. Speaking of the House of Lords, I see that rum fellow Tom Watson will now be wearing the ermine, so watch out for his uh, underprivileged revelations about all kinds of things. Many people have been gravely damaged by Tom Watson, and he's now back in a position to gravely damage them all over again. But it's in the House of Commons that the main drama is occurring. They're about to remove Liz Truss, replace her, either with Rishi Sunak, the diminutive uh, Indian billionaire who almost bankrupted the country during the COVID epidemic and who was rejected by the members of the Conservative Party only a few weeks ago. But they're going to take the whole matter out of the hands of the members of the Conservative Party, who, as I always say, think that we should be ruling India, not that an Indian should be ruling us. And they're going to make a decision inside the Houses of Parliament itself. The decision will be made by the men in grey suits and women in grey suits nowadays who are going to go to Liz Truss until her hard time is up. In fact, she'd need to last until January to not be the shortest-lived Prime Minister uh, in the entirety of British political history. And the record holder, George Canning, had the excuse that he died while in office. There's no chance of Liz Truss making January, so you can already consign her to not the dustbin of history, but to an important place in history as the shortest serving Prime Minister in Britain's history. I told you when they picked her, she was a dolt, D-O-L-T, capital D-O-L-T, as thick as mince in a bottle, and by golly, has she proved it over the few days in which she has served as Prime Minister. Her hapless Chancellor of the Exchequer, Quasi Quarteng, no need to remember how to pronounce the name he'll never be heard of again, was consigned himself to the dustbin of history for bringing forward a budget of which the Prime Minister Liz Truss wholly approved, indeed had been campaigning on throughout the Conservative leadership campaign. And just for putting it in a mini-budget, one which was undoubtedly signed off by the Prime Minister, she sacked him. She said she lied in her letter that he had decided to step aside. He immediately contradicted her and said, I was dismissed as Chancellor of the Exchequer. This has lost Liz Truss a lot of support from the right of the party, and she never had any support from the centre and left of the Conservative Party, and that's why she's as dead as a dodo. Some newspapers are claiming that it will not be Rishi Sunak that is put in her place. Uh, they say it will be somebody called Ben Wallace, uh, who is apparently uh, this man here, 
according to the Sunday Mail in Scotland, which once sacked me. Well, I don't know if that's Ben Dover, Ben Doon, Ben Ten, or Ben from Bill and Ben, or Big Ben, but it sure ain't Ben Wallace. I hope the picture editor of the Sunday Mail is watching. They say that she's going to be removed and replaced by somebody called Ben Wallace. Best remembered by me as the man who said, my ancestors fought you in the charge of the Light Brigade and we're ready to do so again, showing a tremendous grasp of history because the charge of the Light Brigade turned out to be quite a military disaster, even if it has been memorably recalled in poetry. Ben Wallace, a former army man, now I think the defence minister, is an unlikely pick to uh, keep the Tories in power, stop the landslide that's going on under their feet in the public opinion polls. 21% currently intend to vote for the Conservatives, and we'll be talking about all of this to James Melville later. Speaking of 21%, that is currently the number of people in the United States who are intent on voting for Joe Biden in 2024 as President of the United States of America. 21% is a lot of insane people. We knew there were a lot of crazy people in the US. We didn't know that it reached 21%. Even if you add the 12% who say they might vote to re-elect Joe Biden, that comes to 33%. And the Democrats are about to face a long dark night of the soul in the midterm elections. As Garland Nixon put it here last week, they are facing a wipeout of biblical proportions. And I think that, as always, Garland is right. And no party could deserve it more than the US Democrats. They have led the world into a tumultuous war in the heart of Europe. They have beggared and destroyed the European economies and the politicians in Europe are beginning to feel the heat. The centrist government of Italy uh, was the biggest tree in the forest to fall, but it will not be the last. There were mass demonstrations today and yesterday in Germany and in France. And in both cases, uh, the demonstrations were roundly ignored by the media. But this is not 2002. This is not 1982 or 1952. The people know when there are mass demonstrations on the streets of their country. And those demonstrations have several key demands in common. An end to the sanctions on Russia, an end to the war in Ukraine, an end to their government's involvement in the war in Ukraine, and relief for the mass of the people from unemployment, poverty, hunger, and freezing conditions, which people can feel coming in on the north wind, and it's only October. These demonstrations may well uh, change the course of political events. Already President Macron in France uh, had the temerity to tweet, we do not want a world war. You might say that no sensible person wants a world war, but Macron was then assailed by the other NATO countries for backsliding, for showing weakness, 
for encouraging Putin and all of the familiar tropes. Do you want a world war over whether Kupiansk is in Russia or in Ukraine? I keep asking that question. I never get a satisfactory answer from anyone. Because, of course, Kupiansk has been in three different countries in the last couple of hundred years. It matters not a jot to me whether Kupiansk, of which I had never heard, have never seen, can't spell, and have no interest in. I'm not going to see my children incinerated in a world war over Kupiansk. The question is, are you? And if the answer to that is no, then the next question is, what are you going to do about it? Well, in France and Germany, they're taking to the streets. But if there is an anti-war movement left in Britain, if there is a campaign for nuclear disarmament, which was present throughout all of my life from the 1950s until comparatively recently, if there is, they are now moribund because not a cheap can be heard from them. And as a matter of fact, the British Labour Party today issued a statement in the name of a Mr. John Healy. I know you've never heard of him, but he happens to be in charge of Labour's defence policy. It's difficult to grasp, I know. But he said, Labour is the party of NATO. And our first act, first act, will be to convene an audit to make sure that Labour Britain is meeting all of its NATO commitments. A blank check before the hungry are fed, before the poor are clothed, before the cold are warmed. An audit will take place and Labour will make sure we are meeting all of our NATO commitments. So if you don't want world war, it's time to get off your backside and do something about it. That's the long and the short of it. Now, are we going to negotiate our way out of this crisis? Or are we going to continue marching in lockstep behind the doltard Joe Biden all the way to the cliff? That's what I'm going to be asking Alfred Dezeas, a veteran diplomat and expert on diplomacy and negotiations, a former United Nations official, an independent man who has been pointing out some important diplomatic facts, not the least of which that caught my eye was that the referenda which installed Hawaii and Alaska in the United States of America were actually flatly, completely illegal. How about that then? Separatism for Hawaii, for Alaska, anyone? Well, there might be some takers for that. Will this trust be removed by Halloween 51%? Or will it be Guy Fox night on the 5th of November? 49%. Bit wider on YouTube. Yes, it will be uh, Halloween 58%. It will be Guy Fox night, 42%. And on Telegram, it's 48% for Halloween and 52% on Telegram 
think she'll make it to fireworks night. So will Liz Truss leave on a broom, flying across our skies into obscurity before Halloween, or will she go up in a puff of smoke before Guy Fawkes night? That is the question uh, that is posed to you this evening. As I mentioned right at the beginning, the midweek mother of all talk shows is back. And what a spectacular debut. 502,000 viewers. And it's only Sunday. We'll finish that count on Wednesday, just before we go on air. The first hour of the midweek moats is sponsored. And we met the sponsor on the Wednesday show, and a very fine fellow, Ravi, is. But the second hour is still available for sponsorship. If you want to put your company, your goods, your services in front of an audience that size, then get in touch with us. For the moment, until the second hour is sponsored, it has to be sponsored by the viewers. So I hope that if you're watching on YouTube, and by the way, subscribe please to my YouTube channel. Still 40% of the people watching this on YouTube have not subscribed to the channel. Please do so. Cost you nothing. Just click the button and you'll get a notification every time I'm going on air. So if you are watching on YouTube, go to the Super Chat mechanism and make a donation. And if you are not on YouTube, then go to our website, moats.tv, and click on the donate button. As I said, fasten your seatbelts. This is the mother of all talk shows. Will Liz Truss be removed by Halloween or by Guy Fawkes Night? That's by the 31st of October or by the 5th of November. You'll know a degree of certainty on our part that she will be removed rather soon and will not even remotely overtake George Canning, who died in office. She'd need to stay on, I think, until January the 15th in order to avoid being the shortest-lived Prime Minister in Britain's history. Will this trust be removed by Halloween or by Guy Fawkes Night? You can vote on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube channel, or on my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway. If you want to call the show, it's entirely free. If you're in the United Kingdom or Ireland, about which more later, the number is 0808196552. That's 0808196552. It's completely free. Do call now. Get your call in early if you want to get on the air. If you're in the United States or Canada, about which more later, it's also toll free. It will cost you nothing at all. It's plus one eight four four nine four four double three. Double four. That's plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. Professor Alfred Desires is a former United Nations independent expert on the promotion of democratic and equitable international order. Professor Alfred, thank you very much uh, for joining us again. I've got to say you weren't very successful in your previous role because there's not much democratic or equitable about the current international order. Uh, survey the scene for us 
Although I do want to take you back to Hawaii and Alaska. Perhaps you and I need to make a fact-finding tour uh, to Hawaii. Uh, survey the international scene. We have no diplomacy going on at all. I have never known a war where not a single person in any Western country with any power or influence was not calling for ceasefires and, and negotiating tables and all of the verbiage that we normally hear. How so? Why so? George, it's a pleasure to be in your program again. You managed to make me smile in spite of the chaos we are in the middle of. And um, part of the chaos is, of course, uh, the information war. Part of the chaos is uh, the mainstream media. Part of the chaos is the epistemological confusion. Here we have the Charter of the United Nations. That is the only rules-based international order. I'm sick and tired of hearing my President Joe Biden and my um, Secretary of State, Anthony uh, Blinken, uh, invoke ritually uh, this rules-based international order. And who is violating it every day? We are. Now, let's go to the Charter for a second. Article 2, Paragraph 3 obliges all states to negotiate. Now, who doesn't want to negotiate? The United States, NATO forbids uh, <laughs> Macron or anybody else to talk about peace. It's total madness. Who's talking about peace? The Pope. Even, even Elon Musk made a suggestion earlier this week, which was sensible uh, to rerun the referenda uh, in um, Donbass uh, under the auspices of the United Nations. As a matter of fact, the United Nations has failed the world again and again. When has the UN uh, anticipated the problems? When has the UN worked preventively? Because when it did its uh, referenda in Timor-Leste, in Sudan, in Ethiopia, Eritrea, Tens of thousands of people had already died. And uh, we could have had referenda in 1991 when Ukraine splits from the United Kingdom. All of these 30% Russians who live in the East probably would have preferred uh, to stay with Russia. Certainly the Crimeans. You know that I was the representative of the Secretary General for the elections in the Ukraine back in 1994 for the presidential elections in June for the parliamentary elections uh, in March. And I went to the Crimea, I crisscrossed the country. Of course they're Russian, and of course they feel Russian. So again, we have here a violation of Article 2, Paragraph 3 of the UN Charter by NATO, not by Russia. Russia has been trying to negotiate. Russia had a deal which had been uh, hosted by uh, Erdogan, the Turkish uh, president, and on orders from NATO, Zelensky then did not sign, withdrew. So it's, it's a lot of bad faith here. But let's go to Article 2, Paragraph 4. It is the prohibition not only of the use of force, and certainly Putin's uh, aggression against uh, Ukraine uh, is an aggression, uh, but it prohibits the threat of the use of force. And the uh, progressive Eastern expansion of NATO was nothing else but a threat, was nothing else for a menace to the national security of Russia. And that's something that Putin 
said again and again and again, and he drew the red line. And of course, we blithely went over it. So who has violated Article 2, Paragraph 4? Russia, certainly, but we prepared the ground. That is, there are precedents of permissibility because NATO, which by the way, NATO is not a defense alliance. At the latest, when the Warsaw Pact was dismantled, uh, NATO actually became an aggressive uh, organization engaged in bullying, in intimidating, in threatening, all of it prohibited by the UN Charter, all of it against the letter and spirit of the UN Charter. But I'll go one step further. NATO today, judging by the aggression that committed in Yugoslavia, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, judging by the war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by NATO forces. What do you think that means? Article 9 and Article 10 of the Statute of the International Military Tribunal for Nuremberg. Those are the articles on criminal organization. And without a doubt, NATO is a criminal organization. And I think it's absolutely insane that uh, Finland or Sweden would want to join a criminal organization. But let's go uh, back. Let's talk about terrorism. We all agree that uh, terrorism uh, must be combated, but Terrorism, wherever uh, it occurs, certainly the murder of uh, Daria Dugina, the daughter of uh, the uh, Russian philosopher uh, Alexander Dugin, certainly uh, the um, uh, blowing up of uh, Nord uh, Stream 1 and 2, certainly uh, the attack on the civilian infrastructures in Crimea, in particular the bridge, all of that qualifies as uh, terrorism. And it is not being condemned, it is being whitewashed. It is being, there are apologetics in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, in the Wall Street Journal, in CNN, in the BBC. You know, I'm 75 years old. I remember when I believed in the BBC. I thought the BBC was the best thing, you know, uh, <laughs> next to the church. I just thought the BBC was truth. And uh, it took me decades to realize that it's no longer the truth. And I write about that, by the way, in my trilogy, Building a Just World Order, which came out uh, September last year, countering mainstream narratives that came out uh, in August of this year, and the uh, Biggest and best is going to be the book that I will publish next year, Deo Volente, uh, probably in April. I'm uh, more than halfway with the manuscript, and the title is The Human Rights Industry. I could have said the business of human rights, or I could have said, you know, the human rights apparatus, etc. But why industry? Because it functions like an industry. And then you have here governments and uh, intergovernmental organizations, non-governmental organizations that are actually uh, just exercising geopolitical strategies and uh, they don't care about human rights. 
They don't care about human dignity or the victim. I mean, they are playing a geopolitical game. And uh, the 51st session of the uh, Human Rights Council just ended here in Geneva. I participated in a couple of panels. And also this week, I participated in a side event uh, to the third committee of the General Assembly in New York. Uh, it was extremely successful. I was uh, together with Professor Jeffrey Sachs from uh, Columbia University, with Professor Alena Dohan, the rapporteur on sanctions, etc. cetera. Uh, again, there are plenty of people who are saying the right things. One of them being, of course, uh, the great delusion. This is uh, my friend, uh, John Mearsheimer. Uh, another one, of course, is uh, Jeff Sachs, the appearance of the end of poverty. Here is uh, uh, Norman Salomon, a very useful book, War Made Easy, uh, the book by Steve Kinzer on uh, overthrow, which shows, by the way, the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom. Uh, in uh, well, let in, me come in, back to the yeah. let me come back to that, Professor. But before I do, yeah. I want to ask you because I cannot work this out. But you, as a distinguished uh, professor, academic, and diplomat, might be. What is what? Why does Kosovo have the right to declare itself independent from Serbia? and be instantly recognized by all of the NATO powers except three or I think four, be admitted into uh, international sporting, football and other uh, competitions. It's even on its way to Liverpool to participate in the Eurovision Song Contest. But the Donbass does not have the right to declare itself independent from the coup regime in Kiev. Explain that to me, if you could. With more than 40 years under my belt of working um, as a senior lawyer for the Office of High Commission for Human Rights, as uh, Secretary of the Human Rights Committee, as uh, Registrar, my six years as rapporteur, my years as consultant, my years as professor of law, and president of non-governmental organizations. I was president of the Pen Club here in Switzerland for seven years. Uh, in any event, I have seen a lot. And what have I seen? Double standards. That is what I am trying to explain in my third book, The Human Rights Industry, how we have been betrayed by those institutions that we would like to trust. Uh, Juvenal, already 2,000 years ago in Rome, he asked that constitutional question, quis custodiet ipsos custodes? Who's going to be guarding over the guardians? When the guardians betray us, then uh, you have no trust anymore in the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, in the Human Rights Council, in the United Nations in general, in the uh, Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, in the International Criminal Court, you realize that all of these bodies ultimately are in the service of Washington and Brussels at, as things stand today. I mean, there is very little objectivity in the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, very little objectivity in the uh, uh, Human Rights Council, or for that matter, in the General Assembly. And uh, Kosovo 
When Kosovo declares itself independent uh, in 2008, at that moment, international law had not developed to the point that a unilateral declaration of uh, independence would be generally recognized by the international community. But the Kosovo precedent is a precedent. Uh, there is what we term progressive development of international law. You have the 2010 advisory opinion of the International uh, Court of Justice, which in paragraph 80 essentially says uh, that uh, territorial integrity is an important principle for reasons of stability, etc. But it can only be used externally. Uh, it cannot be used against your own population, meaning Serbia cannot uh, defend its territorial integrity by uh, denying self-determination to the uh, uh, Kosovars. That is what the uh, International Court of Justice is telling us. I'm not saying that it is necessarily a good development. I'm just saying that it is more in keeping with Article 1 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. What does that article say? All peoples, and I mean all peoples, have the right of self-determination. That right has two aspects. You can have internal self-determination in the form of autonomy, the form of a federal state, or you can have external uh, self-determination through secession. Now, the uh, secession uh, of uh, Kosovo, the de facto secession, I mean, Kosovo is not yet a member of the United Nations uh, because it would require the approval of all five uh, permanent members of the Security Council. Uh, but uh, you see uh, that uh, this external secession uh, has a certain, shall we say, common sense logic. Uh, you can't turn the clock back. And there's but no that way. would uh, that that would open the door to all kinds of people uh, declaring their secession, including the people of Hawaii and Alaska. Uh, what would the United uh, States attitude be to those secessions? Uh, well, uh, the so-called scam, sham referenda organized by the United States uh, in Alaska and Hawaii in 1958 were completely fraudulent. When you're conducting uh, a self-determination referendum, obviously only the natives are supposed to vote, not the colonizers, not the settlers, and certainly not members of the military. Can you imagine that uh, members of the military in Alaska got five dollars. Uh, you could have a great day in the town uh, for five dollars. Uh, got five dollars to go and vote to join uh, the United States as state number forty-nine. And similarly, I know the military in uh, in Hawaii. The General Assembly, hello, took lock, stock, and barrel the fraud and adopted resolution 1469, uh, relieving the United States from the obligation to continue reporting to the General Assembly under chapter 11 
Article 73. So uh, at that moment, then the United States annexed against the will of the natives of Alaska and against the will of the natives of uh, Hawaii. Because it's a fraudulent uh, resolution or a, fraud, a, a resolution obtained by fraud, and there are referenda were fraudulent, uh, obviously they have no legal validity. But one thing is legality and another thing is reality. And the United States is not about to give up Alaska, which is worth trillions and trillions of dollars in natural resources, including uranium. And it's not about to give up uh, Alaska, I mean, uh, Hawaii, because of its uh, enormous um, strategic importance. So uh, the United States uh, is going to, how we say, uh, demur. The United States is uh, not going to take it uh, without double double standards all round, uh, Professor. Let me tell you that I was in the audience when Fidel Castro uh, described the human rights industry and the so-called non-government organizations as a Trojan horse, and advised everyone. This was more than thirty years ago. Advised everyone. Yeah, they so, are Trojan horses. He advised everyone, don't let these Trojan horses through your gates. Beware of the Greeks bearing gifts. Professor Alfred Desias, thank you very much for joining us on board here, the mother of all talk shows. 0808196552, if you're in Britain or Ireland, uh, plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. if you're in the U.S., or Canada. Let me take a short break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Let's take some calls. Uh, Damien in Brighton is on the line on the international relations. Go ahead, Damien. Good evening, George. Nice um, to hear George, from you again. Go on. Um, George, uh, a recurring theme of your show is uh, morality in international relations, or rather the lack of morality in international yes. relations. Um, I've just written a dissertation on morality and great powers, and I wondered if you would like to hear my findings. Yes, yes, briefly, yes. Yeah, I'll be very brief indeed, George. The background is that um, realism is currently the dominant theory in international relations. And realists argue that because states exist in an anarchical international system, i.e. there's no supreme authority, they can only depend on themselves for their own security. Um, and for that reason, they must constantly accumulate power. 
um, so they don't become relatively weaker to other nations. So for realists, security overrides all other considerations, including morality. Um, the latest version of realism is offensive realism, which goes even further and argues that states should take preemptive action to prevent um, other states um, gaining more power than them over the long term. So that would involve justify wars like Iraq, um, and to go in and all you know conflicts against China. Um, now the central concept here is obviously power, um, and the definition that uh, realists use is that power is military capability based on the strength of a country's economy and the size of its population. Now the problem herein lies the problem, George. If power, um, if power is military capability, that equates power with violence. But if power were violence, then uh, America wouldn't, for example, have been defeated in Afghanistan and Vietnam, and peaceful revolutions wouldn't happen. So power can't be violence. It's not an accurate measure of power. I would suggest a more accurate power, uh, measure of power is to measure a country's sphere of influence, um, i.e. its ability to control events outside of its formal authority. Um, now, my argument is this, George. Um, my argument is that when states behave amorally, when they don't take morality, morality into account with their decision-making processes, the absence of morality always also requires an absence of justice because justice is based on morality. Uh, and there's the problem that um, the lack of justice, because an increasing number of studies are showing that humans have an inherent desire for justice, and so it follows that they will naturally seek it. And if they can't find it in one court, they will look for it in another. And that's the dynamic which affects the shift of power away from unjust and immoral states towards just and moral. Well, uh, uh, very powerfully uh, um, expressed, and uh, I hope the dissertation earns you the doctorate I know that you richly deserve. Uh, as a religious person, I, I want a moral world. I would like uh, for uh, the world to be governed according to moral principles, as laid down in the in the, the Ten Commandments and in other uh, great books of the great religions. I, I think it would be a better world if it were so. I realize that we are a considerable distance from such a world. I myself try to behave morally at all times. And how do I know uh, what is morally the right thing to do? Because God gave me a conscience. And conscience is my daily communion with God. And if my conscience tells me uh, that to do this is wrong and to do that rather is right, uh, then that's what I try to do. Um, and if everyone did that, it would be a, a better world. What I cannot take, Damien, is that one country or one set of countries behaves in the amoral or immoral ways that you describe whilst demanding other countries uh, behave differently to them. In other words, if it is the law of the jungle, if you are allowed to take preemptive action uh, against uh, countries, like say uh, Iraq, as you cited, then Russia is entitled, just as entitled, to take that action in the Ukraine. If self-defense 
and preemptive exercise of self-defense is the new world order, well, it will have to be the new world order for everyone. And therefore, you cannot yourselves behave illegally and immorally whilst denouncing as illegal and immoral exactly the same thing being done by somebody else in their conflicts, in their sphere uh, of influence. Thanks, Damien. Good to have you back. Andy is in Toronto. Let's hear from Andy. Go ahead, Andy. This first is based on a statement I heard. It might have been yourself. And that is that we should never underestimate the ability of the European leadership to undermine their own economic interests. So my question is, why are the European leaders so hell-bent on undermining their own economic interests in regards to Russia and Ukraine? Is it corruption? Are they being bought off? Are they being threatened? Just like the fascists have, in Ukraine have threatened Zelensky not to negotiate with Russia? Or is it ideological? Is it a Russophobic hangover from the last century's Cold War? And the second part of my question is related. Is And I know you don't have a crystal ball, but which European country do you think will fold first and call for an end to sanctions against Russia? Germany, Italy, France, the Czech Republic, or somebody else, or a different country, and all, why? Uh, uh, no, all, all, all of those. Uh Chronologically, uh, I would have put Germany first. I think Germany and France will act in concert. Uh, they will decide that the punishment has been too severe and has gone on for too long uh, because both the French and German governments have severe problems with their own populations about the policy that they are following. But Italy just elected a government that does not have the economic power uh, to make a stand, but may well make a political stand uh, in a way that unsettles uh, the European Union and frees Germany and France in order to make their demarche, which I feel confident that they will. But the Czech Republic uh, that you mentioned, Croatia, uh, there are, I think, five countries in the European Union, uh, in the European Union, who now have normal trading relations with Russia, are not implementing these sanctions against uh, Russia. And some of the names that you mentioned there are among them. Uh, as to why, uh, I ask myself that question every day, if not every hour. Are they being bribed? Some of them are. Are they being threatened? Some of them are. Is it ideological? For some of them, it is. Uh, is it a hangover of Russophobia? For some of them, it is. They've never forgiven. As I think Zhukov said uh, when he liberated Berlin, we have liberated Berlin and crushed the Nazi beast in its lair and they will never forgive us for it. And that, if you think about it, is absolutely correct. The fact that the USSR and Russia, the successor state, won the Second World War. Without them, we'd be talking in German, though we'd be long dead, you and me, uh, in the death camps that would have circumnavigated the whole world. The Holocaust would have continued. There would be no Jew alive today in the whole world. There would be nobody with views like mine, or perhaps yours, alive today in the whole world. Fascism would have ruled supreme if not for the Red Army and its sacrifice 
and its military brilliance and bravery, and they've never forgiven them for it. That's the case for some, for many it is other things. But one thing is for certain. The European leadership is engaged in a monumental act of self-harm, even national suicide. And their people know it. Their people are increasingly voting with their feet, either on the demonstrations or with the votes that they cast in elections. The collapse of the British government, the collapse of the Joe Biden administration to 21%, and a wipeout in November, the loss of Macron's uh, majority, the fall of Draghi and his centrist EU-US coalition in Italy. I could go on, but the hour is uh, moving fast to the eight o'clock break. But Andy, if I knew the answer, truthful answer, complete answer, as to why the European leadership is doing what it's doing, I'd be a smarter man than I am. But the one thing in which I have faith is that their peoples are not fools. They know they've been had by the Ukraine business. And not only Ukraine, by the way, a subject to which when I can, I will turn. Andy, thanks for that call from Canada. James is in Luton. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, James. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the fascist although they call them the neo-fascist party in uh, Italy. Do you think they have uh, sort of visions of grandeur to bring back, you know, to bring back, you know, Mussolini and some of his, and the empire gone in the past? Uh, I really doubt that. Uh, Italy is a broken-backed uh, economy. Uh, it is uh, exceedingly weak on the international stage. It's uh, elections showed uh, the people rejecting almost en masse uh, the centrist uh, consensus of Blairism, of Brusselsism, of NATOism, of Bidenism, and uh, voted, 25% of them voted for the new prime minister, uh, Meloni, uh, and uh, another 25% of them voted for other uh, right-wing parties, I think, 12 or 13 percent voted for the for the five star uh, movement, which is kind of neither left nor right. It's populist and so on. But the one thing you can say about the Italian election is that the status quo was swept away. Uh, now, I don't think that Italy is strong enough to be the country that makes the break. As I've just said in an answer to an earlier caller, I believe that that will be Germany and France, probably in concert. But it may be that Meloni begins because her electorate will expect something like that from her, begins to upset the apple cart in the European Union and uh, by extension in NATO and perhaps in relation to uh, the situation with Russia. James, thanks for that call. I need to uh, take a break, but let me review the poll. Will Liz Truss be removed by Halloween? It's a very close-run thing. On Twitter, 52% Halloween, 48% Guy Fawkes. On YouTube, 58% Halloween, 42% Guy Fawkes. 
And on Telegram, 49% Halloween, 51% Guy Fawkes. And just to put that in context, that's a dichotomy between whether she's out by the 31st of October or whether she hangs on until the 5th of November. Our editor, clever man that he is, Ron Mackay, has just conveyed to me that she'd have to last to the 5th of January to avoid the fate of being the shortest-lived Prime Minister in British history. Tony says Europeans need a sharp axe to chop up their own furniture for firewood. And Jimco says, as usual, great show. Last Tuesday on BBC Radio 4, a man purporting to be the director of GCHQ came on the Today programme and told us the Russians are running out of munitions and troops and that their military commanders are desperate. Oh, and by the way, he said, China is our real future threat. Where on earth do GCHQ find these dinosaurs? At the circus, I think, my dear friend. James Melville has emerged as one of the most important voices in the country and indeed beyond. And I'm glad to say he's now quite regular uh, here on the mother of all talk shows. James, uh, welcome uh, back. Let me get your answer right up front. Will Liz Truss be removed by Halloween or will she hang on till Guy Fox night? I might be wrong, so history might treat this answer quite badly, but I think she might struggle to get through the next week. <laughs> I mean, I think with some of the commentary about Sunak, who seems to be the world's most self-entitled politician right now, where reports are emerging that he hopes that there might be financial panic this week as a conduit to get rid of Liz Truss. So there we have it, basically an individual who failed to become leader after his coup against Boris Johnson when he resigned. He's now plotting again. And the difference with this one is obviously Liz Truss herself, because based on the evidence of the last month or so, she doesn't have any redeeming features as prime minister. She can't present. She's the most, I think, inflated and over-promoted politician in modern British history. Um, and she's flipping around on economic policy, which is causing damage not just to the markets, but when that happens, in the wider real economy as well. So to answer your question, when a prime minister loses momentum and hits the skids, I think we're talking in this case of a matter of days, not weeks. So if I was a betting man, which sometimes I am, <laughs> I would put a bet on, I'd be surprised if she's there this time next week. Well, here's a bet I'll put on right now. Uh, she will not appear at Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday. I don't think they can afford to have her there. And so I think that they will move immediately this very week. And uh, she'll either be gone by Wednesday or she'll be indisposed and unable to appear at Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday. So we'll see if I'm right, if you're right, if the people voting uh, on this poll are right, but let's go to the nub of this question. James, she only won because she was not Rishi Sunak. I'm right, haven't I? Yes, exactly. I think the problem with Sunak last time round is he was the guy who effectively stabbed Boris Johnson in the back with his resignation. That set the wheels in motion of this rather pitiful world's worst game show leadership contest that's been going on all year. Maybe the Tories in power have forgotten about this much more important thing about whether they're conducting the world's worst apprentice contest. There's a cost of living crisis that's been going on all year. 
and yet we've not had any effective policies to deal with that. The policies that were put in place by Liz Truss have now been torn up and start again. They've gone from literally one policy, which is kind of Thatcherism on steroids, to now effectively austerity. So we're now looking at basically an economic policy that seems to be flipping each individual week, but going back to what the biggest problem for the Tories is, they don't have individuals of the calibre of bygone days of Europe. I'm no fan of the Tories, but they don't have politicians who are basically serving what they're supposed to be there for, the people's interests. They don't have an understanding of the economy at large. They have no manufacturing and industry policy in place. They haven't sorted out the energy policy for, for years. I mean, if you take, for instance, in 2017, they shut off the major storage facility for gas. So while they're blaming gas shortages and prices on the Ukraine and Russia, which is the biggest fib ever, the real reason we're in this mess is we're importing our gas. The storage facilities aren't there. You could also look at the aspects with COVID, where they're talking about basically protecting the NHS. But as we all know, the Tory government has not protected the NHS for us with a cut in beds, increased waiting times, lack of staff and so on. So all that we're left with is a squabbling contest amongst inadequate candidates to be another prime minister who will be mediocre again as well. But I think with this one, George, I think the public are looking at this with a different set of optics to, say, even a year ago. I think they're sick of this government. It reminds me of the fag-end days of the major administration where, after Black Wednesday, the public had just had enough. They were sick of it. Labour, basically, will, I think, will, will win quite easily in a couple of years. All Keir Starmer, who basically is not exactly setting the world on fire, all he needs to do is literally keep his mouth shut because the Tories are tearing each other apart. They seem more interested in basically power games than doing what they're supposed to do, and that is sort out this huge economic crisis that's not just happening now, it's been going on for months, and it's going to get worse over the winter. Well, uh, Stammer might set the world on fire. Don't uh, bet against that. Uh, the NATO, uh, the NATO <laughs> clarion call made by uh, uh, John Healy today, but leave that for another day. There were three problems with Sunak, weren't there? The one you mentioned, that he was the key backstabber that uh, conspired against Boris Johnson and saw him fall. The second uh, was uh, that uh, he was blamed for uh, economic policies uh, that uh, spent money like a drunken sailor uh, during the COVID period. And the third one was that Conservative Party members think we should still be ruling India and not an Indian ruling us. None of these three things have changed, and yet the Tory MPs think that they can impose him in a palace coup as the Prime Minister of Britain. Are they right? And what will the impact be inside the Tory party if they do? Yeah. I think that's an interesting point. It's something that's often forgotten about by a lot of our media, but we've got to ask why have we gone to this economic crisis? And a lot of it lies, as you said, with the blame of previous Chancellor Sunak. I mean, if you take, for instance, the magic money tree that quite often the Tories say isn't there, it's certainly been there in terms of quantitative easing, where roughly 500 billion has been printed over the pandemic era. And in total, in terms of quantitative easing since the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, roughly 900 billion. That is not a sustainable model. It devalues. It has a knock-on effect in terms of inflation. And when you pump in 500 billion, 
on the watch of Sunak, there's going to be an economic day of reckoning beyond that. So it's very easy for Sunak to stand there and say, basically, this trust's economic policy is basically by the birds. His legacy is part of that problem. I'm no fan of trust. I think she's way, way, way out of our depth. But to blame her for this economic crisis is, is ridiculous, considering this economic crisis isn't just happening in the UK, it's happening all over the world, and particular countries that have printed more money than others. I mean, if you look at, for instance, what's happened in America with quantitative easing under the Biden era, it's off the scale. We've got the same problem here. So we, we now have a model of the Soviet monetary system that's been creaking realistically since the 70s, but in particular since 2008, 2009, and got a lot worse, obviously, to bail out in the pandemic, and it isn't sustainable. And so, therefore, we're, we're looking at the prospect of how do we keep either paper over the cracks by continually printing money, or what is the alternative? And governments know this, but they're not coming up with answers to deal with something that feels like, right now, George, a giant Ponzi scheme. Indeed. And uh, maybe they can't come up with answers because there are no answers uh, within the parameters of the globalized capitalist system. A bigger issue, I'll grant you. Uh, whatever way you look at it, they made a big mistake getting rid of Boris Johnson, didn't they? At least he wasn't made of cardboard. Uh, at, least, uh, at least he could have bamboozled us with Latin and Greek and a little bit of Turkish thrown in. At least he might have uh, uh, raised a chortle or a chuckle or two and uh, had a brain, had an education. Uh, we, we are seeing lesser men and women than uh, Boris Johnson. Can he come back? Yeah, I think he can. I mean, I am, as you probably know, not exactly the biggest fan of Boris Johnson. Um, he seems to blindside a lot of people, as you said, quoting Latin and getting stuck on zip wires and just looking sort of self-styled, cultivated, shambolic. Um, I think the party gate was his undoing. I think he crossed the line there when people, whether they agreed with the lockdowns and strictures or not, largely were doing their bit. Um, meanwhile, the only hospitality industry that seemed to be burgeoning over that period was down Whitehall, of which he was part of that, and he never really got back from that. But to answer your question about whether he come back, as he said, in his parting shot, hasta la vista, I think he knows, or he knew, that basically success of his trust wasn't up to it, and the economy was heading south. Now, Boris Johnson got a lot of flaws. I don't think he should be anywhere near public office for all the reasons well documented in the past. But the one thing he's got in his favour is his legacy of winning elections and referendum. There is an aspect to him where he has a sprinkling of magic dust to basically, as a, as a golden salesman of politics. I don't buy that at all, but I recognise that he's had a decent track record in getting across the line in terms of elections. And if the Tories are heading into the next election, 20, 30 points behind in the polls, the MPs are going to get spooked. And I don't think Sunak, or certainly not Jeremy Hunt, the self-styled chief executive of Britain, for goodness sake, they're not, they're not electable in terms of prime minister material going into an election. Johnson's proven that he can win an election. I'm not sure the Tories, whoever they get, including Johnson, stand much chance in the next election, likely 2024, because there's still going to be any economic problems. But based on his track record, because he does have a wider appeal than compared to most Tory candidates, I wouldn't write him off yet. And we might have this paradox where if trust goes, a leadership contest between Sunak and Johnson, if it stays within the MPs and they sort of bend the rules, 1922 committee changed the rules, and it's just down to the decision of the MPs, then of course Sunak will win. He seems to be the, the chosen one. But if it goes out to the members, then Johnson would, I suspect, trounce Sunak. 
So that's the situation where I think Johnson, he's far from done. Yeah, I think Kenneth Branagh uh, in a wig uh, pretending to be Boris Johnson would have a better chance of winning than Jeremy, got to say this carefully, Jeremy Hunt uh, would We've all have. struggled with that one, George. Indeed, especially on television. I, I, I want to turn to, if you like, more important issues, even than those we've been discussing. I've been noticing you saying uh, with increasing regularity uh, that the current political dispensation as a whole is unfit for purpose and that we need something new. Are you trailblazing for something? Do you have something new in mind? And if not, why not? <laughs> I mean, basically, I've been thinking this for a while. I mean, I'm politically homeless. I mean, I think you've discussed this before. You know, cheeks are the same backside springs to mind in terms of Tories and Labour. They're not offering anything new. I know, you know, Starmer's got some interesting things to say about nationalising energy and so on, but we don't know the detail. The fundamentalist problem has gone on for quite a long time. I think the majority of the country are turned off by our politics, are disenfranchised. You know, I voted Remain, Europe, Brexit, but I understood an aspect of the Brexit voter where they felt that they were alienated and disenfranchised from the political decision-making. They weren't being listened to. In particular, the areas that were deindustrialized over the last 40 years and forgotten about it, hollowed out. That hasn't been addressed, and it comes back to our failure by successive governments, not just the Tories, but also Labour as well, for not addressing that issue about what to do with those, those amazing areas which are full of enterprise, community spirit, and the proud, proud individuals and communities within those areas, but they haven't been given the opportunity. Now, that is something that needs to be addressed, and I think there needs to be a, some form of new organisation, whether it's political party or movement, that takes into account those concerns. It isn't just focusing on London and the South East. It bridges out across the country, but I also think there needs to be a new broom of type of candidate, and I think there needs to be new rules within what are political, not just discourse, but actually po po political decision-making should, should take place. So, for instance, MPs with no second jobs. There should be no corporate lobbying. There should be complete transparency and accountability with our MPs in Westminster. The MPs also need to be more accountable within their constituents. But we also need to get to a structure whereby communities feel that their MPs are listening to them, representing them, rather than the moment what's happening is communities are just seeing their MPs and government either feathering their own nests or getting too involved or by sort of being blindsided by technocrats from further afield or getting mixed up with some of the corporates. And I think what we need is a new politics with new people whose primary concern is to serve the people they're supposed to represent rather than themselves. And I think the public would cry for a new organisation that if it's well-funded with the right people, with the right manifesto and also the right intentions and integrity i think there is there's an open goal there but at the moment what's happening is very fragmented so you have the two main parties you have lib dems are largely irrelevant and in scotland we've obviously got a different dynamic with the snp but in terms of that other movement there's a lot of disparate organizations some of which are saying some interesting things but there needs to be something new that breaks through that people will go we're going to give these guys a chance and if they let us down god help them they'll be out but I think we need something new that embraces that kind of industrial manufacturing, makes Britain back into a sort of exporting economy rather than importing economy, but also giving communities a sense of civic pride and individual pride. 
across their communities. Because at the moment, there is a whole raft of communities right across the country feel completely forgotten. James Melville, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Much obliged to you. Will Liz Trust be removed by Halloween or will she last until Guy Fawkes night? You decide. Will she be a turn up on Halloween? Will she go up on the bonfire on Guy Fawkes night? Uh, Joe is in New Jersey on international politics. Go ahead, Joe. Hey, hey, George. Uh, good afternoon and, and power to the people, man. Hey, hey, George, I'd like to make a, a correction. You, you have uh, these political guests on from the United States, and, and we're always hearing that Democrats are great or the Republicans are great, and, you know, the other party is the enemy. I'd like to clear something up, and this is basic United States history. The Democratic Republican Party, I will say that again, the Democratic Republican Party was founded by John Adams and, and James Madison, uh, back in 1792. You know, the last non-democratic Republican Party president we've had was was Millard Fillmore, and he ended his presidency in 1953. Every other president, every president since, has been a member of the Democratic Republican Party, which once again was founded by John Adams and James Madison uh, back in 1792. So these people who come on your show and they say, oh, the, you know, the, uh, the Democrats are the problem or the Republicans are the problem, it's a single party. And they always act as a single party, word for word, sentence for sentence, on any international event. And, uh, you know, so I'd just like to clear that up. But the purpose well, for my Well, uh, you, you have done uh, very powerfully, but how do we break that paradigm, Joe? Uh, two cheeks of the same ass. Uh, to translate it into American English, uh, and neither cheek is more attractive uh, than the other. Well, the, the people that rule our governments are those like the Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council, I, I hope you would look this up, but it's the who's who of all of our past uh, legislators, the members of, of, of uh, Congress, all the top, top members of our corporations, the top generals, you look up the you look up the who's who of the Atlantic Corporation and, and others, and you will see. And and, and you know, I, I heard one of your other guests two weeks ago uh, make fun of fascism, and and uh, this is fascism. This is the as as Mussolini stated, the merger of corporate and and uh, political powers or governmental yeah, powers. It, it definitely meets that classic uh, definition of fascism. Not yet, uh, at least uh, the later uh, developments of fascism, of, uh, of uh, concentration camps and gas chambers and holocausts and uh, all the rest. But you're right, uh, it, it meets exactly the definition of fascism that the founder of fascism, Benito Mussolini, uh, adumbrated. Joe, thanks for the call. Uh, Richard is in Manchester. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, good evening, George. Thank you ever so much for having me on your show. Um, well, it's all coming home to roost now. If we get Jeremy, I think his name is Hunt, um, in as uh, tomorrow or the day after, I fully believe that what you said uh, with James Melville uh, will come true and uh, Liz Trust will be finished uh, this week. If we just look back, since Blair came into power, 
all he has ever done or all has ever happened in this country is it's gone down, it's gone down, it's gone down. He said that he was coming in as new Labour and conned everybody because he was a Conservative right from the word go. He's done the bidding of the wealthy, wealthy, wealthy. Made himself very, very wealthy indeed and indeed his family and he's gone in line with what uh, America uh, have told him to do with regards to the wars. That man should be in The Hague on war crimes along with his pony, with his Doberman pincher, Alastair Campbell. And I, I, you know, it should come home to roost to the whole world now. We've not been run this country uh, by the conservatives uh, of, of uh, Mrs. May and, and, and the other lot. They're just little poodles, but they've made themselves very wealthy. And I think it's very disgusting that they come into power and they don't take care of the people lesser off than them. And they're building this up now into a big, big, big crescendo of hate. Uh, and also the people are, are frightened. That's the word. It's the only word for it. They don't know which way to turn, and I feel very, very disgusted with it. George, can I ask you a question? How yeah. can you stop this man now? He's on his way now to power, to power on the World Economic Forum and all the big shows that they go to in the year to tell people, I've got 200 million, 300, 500 trillion, a billion... What does it matter? Why don't they realize that without the people in this world, they're absolute nobodies? Uh, I wish I could answer that, uh, how we can stop them. Uh, I try. Uh, I, I lead a political party, as you know. I present twice a week the mother of all talk shows. I speak on social media all the time. I'm no longer on what they call mainstream media, but then we know the numbers that watch and listen to mainstream media. It's not that much of a loss. Uh, I'm shouting myself hoarse uh, about what is happening that's wrong and what needs to happen that would be right. Uh, but I need people to support me. I need people to support others who are uh, expressing that uh, dissident point of view. Uh, got a jacket in a second-hand shop this afternoon, uh, a Save the Children shop. And when I looked at the label, it said dissident. And I thought, that's very apt, because that's what I have become. Once upon a time, I sat for almost 30 years in the heart of the British Parliament, but I am now a dissident who wakes up every morning uh, and checks whether I've been cancelled uh, and uh, driven still further uh, to the wilderness. Uh, we just got to keep doing what we're doing and do it better, Richard. That's all I can say. Liam is in the county down. That was my grandfather, God rest him's favorite song, the star of the county down. Now I've got Liam in the county down. Go ahead, Liam. Well, first of all, God bless your grandfather, George. Now, Thank you. all I want to see is um, when you look on Twitter and everything like that, you see the, the loudest voices for Ukraine. It seems to be like this certain the group, you know what I'm talking about, there's a certain group in the UK, there seem to be the, the loudest voices for Ukraine. Now, if it actually came to all-out war and fighting, we all know who the people who's going to be doing the fighting is. It's not going to be them who's vocal on Twitter. It's actually going to be the people who are more, not in support of Russia, and not in support of NATO, to be honest, the people who know the crack. That's what I'm saying. They know they are the ones who NATO 
enclosed on Russia, yet we are the ones who are probably going to be sent to do the fighting. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not going to be the people who are hiding behind rainbows and people who are, oh, I'm offended by this, I'm offended by that. They're not going to be the ones doing the fighting. It's going to be actually the people who are more in line, not in line with Russia, but not in line with NATO. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's more like... I do, I do. White work, uh, I, 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 I absolutely do, but there's two caveats I need to enter, Liam. First of all, don't fall for the idea that they are a great army out there, these voices for Ukraine on social media. The vast majority of voices for Ukraine on social media are paid for by you and by me and by taxpayers in Britain and in America, Canada and in the European Union. It's us that are paying an army of robots uh, some of them human robots, but most of them automated robots, to fly the flag for Ukraine. It is not a significant number of people, and I know that because I can and have calibrated the number of Ukraine flags that have faded away, uh, the number of Ukrainian flags that have been run down the flagpole, uh, the number of people that were gung-ho eight months ago, uh, for a war with Russia who have uh, disappeared. They were the original human form of pro-Ukrainian opinion, leaving only the bots. And I'm absolutely convinced, and I have reason to believe it. I have inside information, you might say, uh, inside Twitter at least, uh, that uh, indicates to me that uh, this was Elon Musk tried to get out of buying Twitter because they would not tell him what proportion of the total membership of Twitter were actually bots. And it was those bots, amongst others, that he was referring to. Second point is this, a more melancholy one, Liam. None of us will be fighting for NATO in a war with Russia. That war will be a thermonuclear war. None of us will have time to get our tin hats on, see if we still fit our uniforms, and get all the way to the front line uh, on the river Dnieper. None of us. We will be wiped out in our beds, and we'll be wiped out if we take uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, a single missile uh, fired from Russia within seven minutes will separate into multiple warheads, all of them thermonuclear, and incinerate every major city in Britain. In an instant, we'll all be dead. And those of us who don't live in a major city will be dead from the radiation very quickly. A nuclear winter will ensue. Now, sure, Britain will fire uh, some of its nuclear weapons back if the Americans uh, allow them to turn the key. And uh, the war uh, might be restricted to Europe if the Americans don't fancy intercontinental nuclear war. But that might be too late to stop that, in which case humanity will have come to an end. There'll be no more singing of the star of the county down. Thanks, Liam. Uh, let's go to our good friend and wise man, Erobos 
who's in New York, and you should follow him on Twitter if you haven't already. He's, he puts up some of the, the most uh, important and serious takes on things of anybody on Twitter on that side of the Atlantic. Go ahead, Arobos. Appreciate the kind words, Mr. Galloway. Most uh, sincere. Salubrious night to you. And of course, long, long health and life and power for you, for your friends, your family, and supporters. Uh, my thoughts uh, today is that I fully support the idea that many have mentioned about you becoming prime minister. And I want to tackle, uh, as a solutions-based thinker, I want to tackle the the, the, the question of why uh, people are locked in to the, you know, the boat cheeks, you know, the, the, on the same us dynamic. I think looking at the lessons of 100 years ago in the United Snakes of America, it, it took people to be reduced and immiserated into almost nothingness. And then the Great Depression happened, and then there was a food desert caused by what they call the, the Dust Bowl phenomena where, uh, you know, they, they over-aggregated uh, the land, you know, beyond um, two or three feet, and that dried up. It couldn't produce anymore. So both phenomena, uh, on top of the fact of the industrialists of that age, the Gilded Age, and in classic economic real, uh, liberalism, it was nothing about, it was just crushing the people constantly. You know, you had to bring your kid to work, and if you got sick, you were replaced. You had zero rights whatsoever. And to bring that into today, people, when, you can, when they sit on their couch and then they click the remote and they see no cable television, right? They, they open their refrigerator and there's no food, no snacks. They're getting ready to have their medicine cut. Their, uh, their lights getting ready to get cut. Their kids are getting ready to get starved. This is when people are going to get serious. It's unfortunate. And, you know, I, I, um, I, in the colloquial vernacular, I disparagingly call the majority of people purposefully the moron majority. But when they do wake up, you know, they have, they, they need a place to go. They need a place to point that rage. And the, the UK is, is basically a copy of what we have here, you know, and, um, the fortunate thing about you and what you do and others like you, but mostly you because you have the platform, you have the decades of experience, and you are already in place, right? You don't have to scrap together something as the social order collapses. You have the Workers' Party, and you, you have the, the leadership, and that's very important. And I think people are not prepared for what's going to happen. Right. They just want to they just want a place to put their rage and direct their rage. And then, the, you know, the military responds and crushes them. But if they have a place to go and it's a place that's real and it's a place that that's dependent on, like what you have with the Workers' Party and what we're trying to do here with the, with the People's Party and, and other versions of this, then there's real hope. There's real hope and optimism. And I'll just finish by saying the, the collapse of the unipolar world order is also playing into this dynamic where the Workers' Party can rise, the People's Party can rise, and other movements like this, right? The, 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 the shattering of the petrodollar, 
the decline of the, the hegemony of the West, in particular the leadership of the United States government. When all of that goes down, people have a place to go because, as you always mention, Euro-Asia is, is the future. And the future is just a now that hasn't happened yet. But everything is in place to make that happen. And failing that sobering report you just gave about thermonuclear extermination, that they rather take the, the oligarchy, the billionaire parasites, they rather jump into their rockets and let everything be destroyed than allow someone like yourself or like, you know, uh, Nick Bronner that we have here to rise. That's also a, sub, a sobering swing of the pendulum. However, I'm confident that once people lose their creature comforts and they have no more distractions, then unfortunately, that's when they'll come out and we can gather their anger and focus it and, and make something of it, right? become the power that people need. This, these are just my um, you know, my. Well, I'm, 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 uh, I'm almost uh, speechless at the power uh, of your eloquence. Uh, I won't try and recap uh, the points that you made. I suspect that you are right. I add only my oft-repeated uh, quotation that there are decades when nothing happens, but there are weeks when decades happen. And it may very well be that in the course of this winter and into the bitter bleak midwinter of this economic and soon-to-be social crisis that uh, great change uh, may occur. Uh, we don't know uh, that it will necessarily be positive. It could be negative. We could lurch uh, towards fascism. We could turn towards uh, politics like mine. That remains to be seen. But the center cannot hold. The center, as represented by the centrists, the NATOists, the Brusselsists that currently rule the roost in Washington and in Europe, are so bereft of political authority. And as James Melville pointed out, though he doesn't share my politics, uh, as he pointed out, people have discovered that these people have no answers. Now, I believe that's because there are no answers within the current economic and political system that we operate. But whether you accept that or not, that the people have discovered that our rulers have no answers, I'm absolutely certain that he is right. Thank you, brother. James is in California. Let's go to sunny California. Go ahead, James. How are you doing, George? I um, wish I was with you in California. Go ahead. <laughs> just an observation, George. You know, Russia just dangled the um, opportunity for Turkey to be a gas hub through Europe. Yeah. Now, I'm thinking maybe Russia has a backdoor policy or it might make Turkey more reluctant to vote for um, Finland and Sweden being part of NATO. Do you think that's a possibility? Well, um, Finland and Sweden joining NATO is, of course, uh, uh, decisions made by the parliament 
and government of both these countries it has not been put to the people of uh, either of these countries and I don't believe uh, that uh, the, the either will be admitted. I think it was showmanship, it was gesture politics. I don't believe that Sweden has ever been neutral, neither in the Second World War when it was more or less openly collaborating with Hitler fascism, nor in the Cold War period when they claimed to be neutral. I don't believe that Sweden, if it was admitted to NATO, would add up to more than a row of beans, but Finland would be a casus belli with Russia. If Finland, uh, who could throw a stone uh, across the uh, channel and land it on Russian soil, if that were to join NATO, a nuclear-armed anti-Russian military alliance, that would be a cause of war between Russia and Finland. For all those reasons, I don't believe that either Russia or Finland will be joining NATO. And I'm pretty sure that this war will end with a guarantee of that. Ali is in Turkey. Talking of Turkey, let's hear from Ali. Go ahead, Ali. Hello, good evening, George. It's a pleasure, as always, listening to you, Thank you and sir. follow your program, as always. I think you are the last common sense voice that our ears really, really like to sing on. Anyway, uh, George, regarding NATO, uh, you know what happened in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, the NATO was similar to what happened in Ukraine, uh, doing the same job. So what's the difference between NATO, Nazi, uh, Qaeda, ISIS, Daesh, and all that? They all come from the same hub, isn't it? I mean, in Syria, suddenly they imported 65,000 Toyota from Japan, and everybody was armed and ready to do what they did in the last 12 years in our countries. They destroy everything. It's exactly what they're doing in Ukraine now. I mean, what is the difference? Is NATO that... Well, uh, as as I said uh, on the Wednesday show, Ali, they are a seamless garment. Uh, The uh, idea that uh, uh, all these thousands of Uyghurs from China and uh, Islamist fanatics from South Wales and the Midlands of England all ended up armed and tooled up uh, to destroy Syria, and it all happened by happenstance. The wind just blew them in there, is of course belied by the news this very week that the Canadian authorities informed the British state through its intelligence services when a young schoolgirl from my former constituency in East London had been smuggled in to join ISIS in Syria. And this at a time when the Metropolitan Police were searching for her, when the British government was looking high and low for three schoolgirls who had run away to be sexually abused, forcibly married, drafted into the uh, 
the blood cult, the murder gang of uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Syria. It was a Canadian intelligence agent who smuggled them in. And Canada informed the British within three days, whilst we were told on our state-mandated television that Britain was genuinely concerned and searching for these girls, had no idea where they were, was putting out an all-points bulletin, an alert, to try and find them when we knew where they were. They were in the camp of ISIS in Syria. The idea, Ali, that all of this happened without NATO and United States and United Kingdom and Five Eyes direction is so ridiculous, only a fool would believe it. I'm afraid they're a seamless garment. And I'm afraid that we have all of them facing us as our adversary. Let me go to China, where some very important events are taking place today. Let's hear from Chris in Hong Kong. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, yeah, how are you this evening, George? Uh, I hope people uh, can understand me. I'm somewhat hoarse, uh, just about getting over COVID, I'm afraid. <laughs> Uh, oh, which wow. just struck me in the week, so uh, not the best. Uh, however, uh, on a serious matter for a change, um, I, I was uh, pleased to read um, a, a nice communication from uh, the European uh, Union uh, on Thursday, um, issued by uh, Joseph Footin-Mouse Burrell, um, uh, giving a speech of presentation to the European Diplomatic Academy in Bruges Thursday evening. Now, in the speech, which uh, people can read via the European Union uh, website, uh, Mr. Burrell was very happy in stating that Europe, the EU, NATO stand, however we wish to refer to it, is a wonderful beautiful, pretty garden with all these freedoms and everything else and anything outside, obviously, NATO stand is a jungle and the jungle is threatening to invade the garden, which I thought, well, that's rather strange because uh, from my own uh, university studies, I remember rather well the Congress of Berlin in the 1870s when uh, Africa was carved up for the European powers, uh, one amongst them uh, being Belgium. Blues, I The worst it, amongst them. In, isn't it? And I was thinking, oh, Belgium, Congo. Yes, the garden is fertilized by the bombs of the people you murdered in the Congo. What, Ten million of them. Ten million yeah. of them, Chris. 10 million people in the Congo were murdered by Belgian colonialism. And a Belgian politician has the gall to describe other people as savages. Of course, the other imperial powers did it for longer and wider and killed far more people in the end. But Belgium, 
tiny little Belgium murdered 10 million people in Congo, including amongst them the greatest of all African leaders, Patrice Lumumba, whose body they dissolved in acid, stealing one body part, which they refused to return to his family and his country until just a couple of months ago. You couldn't make it up, Chris, but there's no need to. History is history. Last call is from Elvis. Elvis is in the building. It's Kenny in Acton. Go ahead, Kenny. Hello, George. <laughs> I made a mistake last week. I never actually meant to say Italy. I just meant to say that 300,000 people had fled Russia. So uh, I don't yeah, know why I yeah, said well, Italy there. Uh, but okay, all right. Go I'm ahead. making a different point this time, though. Yeah. Here's my point. There's a Nigel Farage-shaped vacuum in the Tory party. And I think that if Nigel Farage was to sensationally join the Tory party, all the Brexiteers and all the Boris Johnson faithful would endorse him and get right behind him. And he'd become the Tory party leader and win the next election. If he'd done that, it would also avoid splitting the Tory vote. Like, it seems like he's subtly threatening to come back into politics if, you know. Well, I'll tell you what, Kenny, I'm with you at least on, uh, to this extent. I, I do think it's a mystery why Farage is not out front and centre in politics right now. Because the conditions are perfect for him. It's a mystery why he has retired from political life. I don't know if it's a shortage of money and he needs to uh, concentrate on his media work or he's been promised something, although that promise has never been redeemed. I thought at one time he'd be uh, going into the Lords or at least uh, acquiring a knighthood for whatever either of those is worth. Uh, so that doesn't seem to be happening. I'm sure there are rich men uh, that would fund him. Uh, I don't know how much money he needs uh, in order to uh, get by, uh, but it is undoubtedly true that with thousands arriving on the beaches as uh, illegal migrants uh, from the European Union, with uh, Brexit uh, being betrayed, with Hunt and Sunak uh, likely to take us uh, ever closer uh, to the European Union, with Boris Johnson having been defenestrated, it is a surprise to me that uh, Nigel Farage is not right out in front leading right-wing politics in Britain today. I don't know him well enough to know the answer, but it's a question that I frequently ask myself. Now, not only is that all I've got time for, I've gone on for three minutes and 25 seconds at least longer than I ought. I can't stop talking and neither can you. Your calls have come in literally from around the world. The good news is I'll be back on Wednesday at 9 p.m. UK time. Note the change of time on Wednesday for the midweek mother of all talk shows. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.